and around. Back and around. Back and around. That sounds like the guy who is the star of uh, Music Man, which is horrible. Money is the root of all evil, and capitalism is all about money, so you do the math. This is hell. If you are or you become poor, you may need assistance. In most countries, that's about all that is necessary. You're poor, and you want help, so you get it. But there's a lot more to it here in the U.S. Not only do you have to go through an application process where you get the feeling that the financial assistance is coming directly out of the pocket of the administrator you happen to be speaking with, but there's also a qualification process where everything you write down must be and stay 110% accurate, or you might lose whatever small amount of help you actually do get. And it is a small amount, but for those ravaged by poverty... It can be a key to survival, as it was once for me. Then to get the help you need, you must waive all of your privacy rights and open yourself up to state surveillance. Surveillance that can lead to accusations of welfare fraud, which can actually lead to criminal charges. Fraud investigators can look into the most intimate aspects of a recipient's life in a quest to find the most petty transgressions that may vary from information shared with welfare so the investigator can joyously catch someone who they believe is one of what they call the undeserving poor. This miserable situation placed on top of the misery of poverty is purposely constructed to make it so the poor do not want to apply for assistance, fearing potential criminal prosecution. And if you are receiving it, you want the this miserable experience to end as soon as possible. It's all because we have a very cruel needs-based and means-tested system for receiving public assistance, unlike much of the rest of the world. What that testing does is leave many deserving poor without help and on the streets. We'll discuss what it is like to have a life in poverty and under surveillance in a few minutes when we speak with sociologist Spencer Hedworth, author of Policing Welfare, Punitive Adversarialism and Public Assistance. Spencer is Assistant Professor of Sociology at Purdue University and an Affiliated Scholar at the American Bar Foundation. You can find out more about Spencer at his website, spencerhedworth.com I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, podcast, live-streaming host, Chuck Mertz, producing this morning's show. Well, if it's Wednesday, it must be Richard Norwood. Richard, what's new by you? Oh, I, last week I forgot to uh, talk with you about a little trivia item about last week's Rotten History segment. Oh, let's hear the trivia. So, I don't know if you want to remind people about what that little segment was about. Uh, well, it was a horrible segment about a woman being lynched and having yes. something horrible happen to her. Yes. Well, I worked on a theater show about that very incident. No kidding. Yes. We, uh, this theater company here in Chicago called Congo Square, uh, produced a play about that very incident. What was the name of the play? Do you remember? Yes. It's called Small Oak Tree Runs Red. Oof. And uh, the playwright is Lakitha Dalcor. Dalco, and um, it was a—I uh, mean, it was pretty intense, but it was beautifully done in a very allegorical and lyrical way. How, so, when when were you involved in this? Uh, it was like 2016, I believe, spring spring of 2016. And where was it performed? At the Athenaeum. Oh, no kidding! Yeah. So a big crowd. It was a, that's a pretty big house. Well, I mean, they have uh, some smaller theaters in there, so it was like a hundred seat uh, house. Wow. Uh, but, yeah, so go back and listen to last week's Rotten History. I don't want to give people a trigger warning again, but it's about yes. a lynching of a pregnant woman. and Yeah, it's awful. It's a really horrible Rotten History that I actually had to give a trigger warning to, and I've never done that before. Richard, I got a question for you. Do you yes, ever get sir. a taste for fast food that you know is not that great tasting and is definitely not that good for you, but you just got to have it and you just get some anyway? Um. I, I've certainly experienced that in the past. I think I've kind of weaned myself off of those uh, those feelings or those uh, urges, I guess. I, you know, I thought I had to. 
and I think this pandemic just made me go crazy on so many different levels. Yesterday, my girlfriend, so she had to go to the office for the day, so I figured she's probably finding out about this right now as she listens to the world broadcast premiere of This Is Hell every Saturday morning on WNUR 89.3 FM Chicago Sound Experiment. So I figured I'd take the opportunity to get food she would never want and would likely make fun of me, completely deride me for actually wanting or eating. I'd probably feel like an inch tall by the time she was done. (laughs) Tearing me down As expected the, the food was not great Was arguably not even good It was exactly what I thought it would be In all its generic taste and look And was yet another reminder That if you are someone like me With issues like diverticulosis Fast food is not good for you or your guts And I know I will be suffering from yesterday's fast food For at least the next 24 hours If not more So why the hell do I every so often Get an intense desire to have lousy fast food I mean there is such a thing as good fast food, but you never find that at a national or global chain. There are plenty of independent fast food spots everywhere, especially in a city like Chicago. So what the hell is wrong with me? Does anyone else get a craving for something you are absolutely certain is not good for you? And I'm not talking about drugs or alcohol. And you still order it and consume it anyway, which every time makes you feel nauseous almost immediately upon eating. Advertising is a powerful drug, I'm telling you. More importantly than any of that, Richard, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell is, what secret society are you trying to join? <laughs> what se- and I'm really surprised that no one has said the most best answer. Oh, you have the best answer? Will, will you be it, revealing it later, or do you want to do that now? I can do it now. All it, right, let's it, hear does, it. it does have a very, that the secret society has a very steep initiation fee. What's that? Well... I'll, I'll tell you what the secret society is first. Okay. It's the Illuminati. Yes. And you want to know what the steep <laughs> initiation fee is? What is it? You have to read all the Robert Anton Wilson books. <laughs> it is a steep initiation <laughs> fee. About the Illuminati. I was watching a dumb show on the History Channel last night about secret societies. Yes. And I was reminded again that there is no history on the History Channel. There's <laughs> absolutely no evidentiary history whatsoever. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio. You can email it to us at chuck at thisishell.com, but we must have your answer by the end of Thursday's show when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth. During this week's moment, Jeff goes uber Hollywood. By the way, the person with our favorite answer to this week's question wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you would like. All you have to do to see all of the ways in which you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell is by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. We want to thank Magnificent Me for doing just that overnight. We also got an email from Rue in Glasgow overnight. Rue writes, How's it going, Chuck? Just listen to your shout-out to Josephine from Glasgow. I knew the Clyde side still ran red. Just wanted to extend my enthusiasm for pints someday. If you're ever in town, do drop us a message if a trip ever materializes. Cheers, Rue from Glasgow, but temporarily residing in Birmingham. And I want to thank Rue because this led me down a rabbit hole about Red Clyde side, as in the River Clyde that runs through Glasgow. Of course, the opening of the rabbit hole always can be found at wikipedia where it says red clyde side was the era of political radicalism in glasgow scotland and areas around the city on the banks of the river clyde such as clyde ba- clyde bank Grenock, dumberton and paisley from the 1910s until the early 1930s red clyde side is a significant part of the history of the labor movement in britain as a whole in scotland in particular some newspapers at the time used the term red clyde side to refer largely deris- uh, derisively to the groundswell of popular and political radicalism that had erupted in Scotland. A confluence of charismatic individuals, organized movements and socio-political forces led to Red Clydeside, which had its roots in working-class opposition to Britain's participation in the First World War. Although the area had a long history of political radicalism, going back to the Society of the Friends of the People and the Radical War of 1820, a hundred years earlier. So that radical war is known as the Scottish Insurrection and was a week of strikes and unrest in Scotland, a culmination of radical demands for reform in the UK of Great Britain and Ireland, which had become prominent in the early years of the French Revolution, but had been repressed during the long Napoleonic Wars. In other words, 
The radical movement of Red Clydeside can be found from the early 19th century until the early 20th century, and I'm starting to realize Scotland is a lot more radical than I may have thought. And get this, which is relevant to our conversation that we're going to be having today on policing welfare. An economic downturn after the Napoleonic Wars ended, uh, that brought increasing unrest in Scotland. Artisan workers, particularly weavers, sought action to reform an uncaring government. The rich, fearing a revolution, recruited militia, and the government deployed an apparatus of spies, reformers, and Asian provocateurs to stamp out the movement. An uncaring government. It sets up systems of surveillance, contributing to mob violence instead of serving the public. That sounds frightening like what is happening in the U.S. today with the process of getting and staying on welfare. We also got an email from Adam B., who last week suggested we all watch the free online documentary Killing Gaza, which is brutal. Adam writes in a... a spectacular way. Adam writes, since you asked about documentaries and since you talked about Gil Scott Heron's The Revolution Will Not Be Televised on last week's Patreon podcast, I'd be remiss if I didn't highly recommend the early 2000s documentary The Revolution Will Not Be Televised. Some Irish filmmakers went down to Venezuela to take a closer look at Hugo Chavez, his inner circle, his working class base, and his reactionary opposition. They capture all that quite well, but what they hadn't counted on, and what makes the movie one of a kind, is being right in the center of the 2002 coup, filming from inside the chaos in the presidential palace. Like Killing Gaza, it's easily found available for free online. Thanks, Adam. The filmmakers plan was to document what life was like inside Venezuela at the beginning of the Chavez administration and revolutionary Chavismo, and instead documented an attempted coup within the presidential palace itself, which sounds fascinating. Again, for your viewing pleasure this weekend, Adam suggests the documentary, The Revolution Will Not Be Televised, but if you're looking for something on what is happening in Palestine, check out Killing Gaza. You can email us at chuck at thisishell.com, DM us via Twitter, at This Is Hell Radio, or message us via Facebook at facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Coming up, the adversarial relationship between public assistance recipients and public assistance. We'll have more of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, what secret society are you trying to join? What secret society are you trying to join? As well as tell you what's happening on tomorrow's show. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show, live stream, and podcast host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Richard Norwood, live from the United States, where property has more rights than people. This is hell. Being poor and getting public assistance has changed dramatically over the last 40 years. Dating back to President Reagan and his anti-welfare campaign, and with the help of President Clinton's crime omnibus bill and welfare reform, receiving welfare has been linked to carceral punishment. Here to help us better understand what life is like under the surveillance of the welfare system, sociologist Spencer Hedworth is author of Policing, Welfare, Punitive Adversarialism in Public Assistance. Welcome to This Is Hell, Spencer. Thanks, Chuck. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. This is Spencer's first book, so congratulations, Spencer. Oh, thank you. I appreciate it. Spencer is Assistant Professor of Sociology at Purdue University and an affiliated scholar at the American Bar Foundation. You can find out more about Spencer at his website, spencerheadworth.com. You begin by introducing us to Leslie, a welfare fraud investigator, a white woman in her late 30s. She started her career working in eligibility determination for her state's public assistance agency. Now, after moving to its dedicated fraud control unit, she is responsible for investigating and substantiating clients' rule violations in the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, the SNAP program, and Temporary Assistance for Need families, the TANF program, the two things that basically make up what is known as welfare, largest federal nutrition and cash assistance programs, respectively. So how much fraud actually does occur with SNAP and TANF? To what extent is Leslie a good investment for the government when it comes to saving public money from fraud? Well, uh, exactly how much fraud occurs is something of an unsettled question. So according to um, the USDA, the United States Department of Agriculture, who runs the SNAP program due to a kind of interesting legal and and bureaucratic history, uh, the overpayment rate in SNAP is somewhere under 3% uh, and only about 0.2% of SNAP benefits are lost to fraud. So according to the people who run this uh, much larger program than TANF, SNAP, 
uh, it's very small, uh, a very small percentage of benefits being lost to fraud. Uh, however, the people who I interviewed uh, for the book, I interviewed welfare fraud investigators in five different states across the country. Uh, they tend to see those official statistics as underestimates. Uh, and it is their contention that fraud is significantly more common than those uh, statistics would suggest. Uh, I think part of that is based on the fact that they see a particular subset of the client population, people who have been uh, deemed suspicious uh, and about whom they hold suspicions, even in the event that they are unable to substantiate fraud charges in particular cases. Uh, and yeah, some of it, I think, has to do with the sort of uh, occupational norms and conventional wisdom and, and so forth that circulates within these uh, dedicated enforcement entities within welfare agencies. And the return on investment question, uh, again, somewhat hard to really put your finger on. So there are statistics available uh, that indicate that for every uh, sort of post-certification investigation in SNAP that uh, these investigators complete, they return about $240 uh, in benefits. And uh, we don't know exactly how much one of these investigation costs, but in terms of uh, people power and overhead uh, and investment in administrative hearing officers and so on and so forth, somewhere more than $240 uh, per investigation seems likely in terms of the cost. So in that most concrete sort of dollars and cents calculation, it does not appear to offer good return on investment. Uh, again, however, the investigators who do this work would add uh, and would emphasize and do emphasize that there is a major symbolic component to this as well, that it's not just about the actual money that they can return, although they place a big emphasis on that as well, but it's about changing the program environment. It's about sending a signal to, to people who might wanna apply or people who are participating that they are being watched, that there is enforcement happening uh, and that if they break rules, they will be caught. Um, so that sort of symbolic side of the outcome of these investigative and enforcement efforts is also a significant part of how they think about and justify their work. Are there other agencies where the inspector general or whoever is the oversight, where they found a greater fraud that are, does not have the same kind of fraud investigation? So I'm trying to figure out if there's a type of enforcement inequality. Do those at the other end of the economic spectrum, are the rich monitored, say, in tax fraud as much as the poorer monitored for a potential SNAP or TAMF fraud? Uh, well, I think uh, we know uh, for a certainty that especially in the last decade or so, the rich aren't investigated even for tax fraud as much as the poor are investigated for tax fraud in a uh, rather shocking uh, development. Uh, and there are definitely enforcement entities uh, that are focused on more powerful, better resourced actors who play various roles in our kind of public-private hybrid uh, welfare social safety net system. Um, and I'm thinking here primarily about medical providers, billing agencies, medical professionals who uh, defraud publicly supported healthcare programs like Medicaid, Medicare, uh, Social Security, uh, to the extent that that, that provides uh, relevant uh, assistance. There is no doubt that that is where the high dollar expenses are coming from. Uh, and, uh, you know, if you sign up for alerts from the Department of uh, Health and Human Services Office of Inspector General, you can get weekly emails telling you about the billing agency overcharging people by, you know, $50 million, over, overcharging the, the public system by $50 million, you know, a, a network of occupational therapists that committed a, a billion dollars with a B um, in fraud against publicly uh, supported healthcare programs. So uh, that's where the big money is uh, for sure. And there are uh, offices that attend to that, especially at the federal level. Uh, the, the FBI gets involved in these investigations, uh, Department of Health and Human Services Office of Inspector General, uh, 
as the fact that they are catching people, right, suggest they are doing some of this. But the kind of really granular day-to-day surveillance and this uh, very invasive and personal form of surveillance that we see um, in the kind of fraud investigation offices that I looked at, that is something that is uh, more or less exclusively applied to the poor. So how much is this just because it's a strategic or bottom line decision that's being made by people involved in oversight investigations because they see the poor as low-hanging fruit, as people who are easier to get prosecutions against, as people who may lack the resources of powerful attorneys or might lack political power to make a deal about it, go on Fox News and tell people about how they're being persecuted. Is that the strat? Is that a strategic decision that's being made? Uh, I think that's in the in the tax fraud uh, arena, I think that's clearly a strategic decision that's being made. Uh, in the in the welfare fraud arena, uh, it's somewhat more complicated. Uh, the federal government, since the mid nineteen eighties, has required the state agencies that administer TANF and SNAP to maintain these fraud investigation units. So. Uh, focused on clients, right? So they do not have a choice. Uh, They have to do some level of this type of thing. Uh, However, within that broad federal mandate, uh, there is a pretty wide range of uh, approaches, right? So different states are much more invested in uh, really aggressively pursuing clients than our other states. Um, And I think that you know part of the focus on clients uh, may be this sort of strategic uh, uh, analogy that we can draw to the tax fraud situation, where they are easier to go after. Almost none of them are have lawyers. Uh, it's uh, you know there is no right to an attorney when you are facing an administrative or a civil legal charge. Right, the Gideon uh, versus Wainwright does not apply here. No right to have an attorney provided for you if you cannot afford one. Um, so they are relatively vulnerable um, to these types of charges. Um, And I think that a big part of the focus on them is is not just that vulnerability per se, but this construction uh, that is certainly not new to the last four decades, but has uh, doubtless intensified since the Reagan era and into the Clinton era and beyond, this construction of people who participate in public assistance as not just lazy or shiftless, but actively mendacious, parasitic, right? Attempting to victimize uh, the body politic. So uh, I think that in addition to the vulnerability, a big part of this is this idea that these people need to be controlled and punished, right? Um, And that that, uh, their, their vulnerability makes it easier to accomplish that goal. And you point out, as Leslie suggests, one of the fraud investigators that you speak with, what began as administrative investigations can also lead to criminal charges when fraud units refer cases to prosecutors. Recipients must agree to this kind of surveillance, as you were pointing out earlier. Do the crimes have to relate to the fraud, or are investigators expected to report any crime they see a welfare fraud suspect may be committing? Their jurisdiction and their legal authority is officially limited to things relevant to the program. Uh, As you indicated, that includes a lot of really personal stuff, right? Who you're sleeping with, how often they sleep at your house, uh, where your kids live, uh, where they go to school, uh, how you earn money by any way, who gives you money for any reason, right? Um, Some of the things that we tend to think of, at least in the United States, as among the most personal aspects of your life are well within their official ambit. So uh, formally, right, it's only only that set of things, that big set of things that's germane to your eligibility or lack thereof uh, for these programs. Uh, However, uh, welfare fraud investigators also work hand in glove with uh, actors in the criminal justice system, including uh, prosecutorial authorities, you know, district attorneys, uh, and so forth, uh, as well as police agencies, sheriff's departments, state police, local police departments. Um, so, one of the things that you know came across in some of my interviews is the informal relationships that welfare fraud investigators often have with actors in the criminal legal system. Uh, in which they will share information uh, both in through sort of the 
formal official channels as well as through back channels uh, that are developed through those personal relationships where they know someone that they can call um, who might have access to a criminal information database or something like that, that the welfare fraud investigator wouldn't have access to. And conversely, if a member of the sheriff's department or a member of the state police is looking for information about someone that might be contained in a uh, public assistance type of database, they can then, the, the police actor can then reach out to the public assistance actor and say, you know, can you tell me what information you might have about, you know, Jim or Joe or Mary or whoever it is. Uh, so officially their authority is limited to the program, but they do have these relationships uh, with members of, uh, members of the formal criminal justice system that help them do these sort of cross agency uh, investigative efforts contribute to this sort of carceral net type of thing. Uh, and I would also add that when people are prosecuted for welfare fraud, uh, it is often part of, um, especially if they're you know, going to invest the prosecutorial resources in these types of cases, it's often as part of a conjoined criminal case, right? Where you are gonna be charging someone uh, the kind of classic example that welfare fraud investigators like to give is charging someone for um, some type of drug distribution offense, as well as a welfare fraud offense, because they arrested someone who had six different people's EBT cards, uh, in addition to you know narcotics or uh, whatever. And so they're going to charge that person with a uh, drug offense, or more likely multiple drug offenses, uh, as well as a uh, you know, like a snap trafficking type of offense uh, for this allegation that they were accepting snap cards in exchange for drugs. My uh, sister uh, was a social worker in Battle Creek, Michigan. And uh, during that time, my household, we were having financial difficulties. And when it was when food stamps were still around, we mm -hmm. got food stamps for a couple of months. And when they told me, that I had to separate my food from my girlfriend's food because she didn't qualify for food stamps, but I qualified for food stamps, that I had to separate that food in my cupboards because when investigators come in, they're gonna wanna see that my food is separate from her food. And that really freaked me out. And I told my sister-in-law and she said, oh, and when they come, they'll come just like I do with a police officer in tow. How aware do you think the public that does not and never has received these kinds of benefits, how aware do you think they are of this kind of surveillance? And if they were aware of this kind of surveillance, do you think it would have any effect on the way that they feel about welfare? Uh, you know, this is an interesting question. I, I don't think people are really aware uh, of this component of the system. Uh, I don't think even a lot of you know social scientists who study poverty and even study welfare uh, have really attended much uh, to this distinctly uh, policing-oriented component within uh, these agencies. So I think that, yeah, most people are not really aware. Um, and many clients, um, until they, you know, find themselves uh, subject to one of these types of investigations, aren't really aware. They're certainly aware that, there is surveillance out there that their behavior uh, could be could be monitored and so forth. But um, at least according to the the fraud investigators that I spoke to, many people express surprise uh, when an investigator shows up at their door and you know shows them a badge and says, you know, I'm here to look around. Um, so I, I don't think it is it is that widely known. The fraud investigators themselves have mixed feelings about this. You know, they value this symbolic aspect of their work. They do want people uh, both in the uh, non-participating public and the participating public. Uh, they do want people to be aware uh, that this is happening. They want it to change perceptions of the program at large. They want it to get inside people's heads uh, who are participating or considering participating and maybe affect their behavior. Uh, but conversely, they also value the stealth. Uh, they value this idea of being able to sit outside someone's apartment for two days and see who comes and goes they uh, without them necessarily, without the client necessarily being savvy to the fact that that, that is happening. They value this uh, ability to 
maybe show up when someone wasn't expecting them to possibly show up and catch something like one of the, the violations that you mentioned. So for the investigators themselves, this is something of an internal contradiction because they both want people to know what they're doing uh, and they kind of don't want people to know what they're doing. So how difficult is it for those who need assistance to fulfill all of the rules that they must follow? Uh, So, you know, in my research, I've focused on the investigators themselves. There's a lot of really great research uh, out there that's focused on clients. Um, I would especially point to Karen Gustafson's work. She's a law professor at UC Irvine who wrote um, what I sort of view as, you know, the uh, landmark text in this area, a book called Cheating Welfare uh, that came out in 2011, I believe, um, from NYU Press. Um, and that book is largely about clients' experiences with the system, their perceptions of the system, and their uh, ability right, to follow rules. Um, and one of the things that, uh, that Karin documents really compellingly is that most of uh, you know, the clients that she talked to and interviewed and, and spent time with, uh, they, they want to follow the rules, right? They say they want to follow the rules, but it's impossible. Uh, it, the rules are extremely complicated. Uh, the reporting requirements are burdensome. And it is a particular irony that the people whose lives are most unstable, least predictable, uh, most difficult on a day-to-day basis are also the people who face this extra burden, these really significant extra burdens of paying attention to where they're storing their food, right? Uh, Paying attention to making sure that they've documented every single uh, dollar that they've come across by one way or another. Uh, And keeping these agencies constantly informed of Uh, the changes in lives that are precarious uh, and often uh, change frequently. So um, yeah, Karin's work uh, as well as others' work uh, really uh, compellingly shows that trying to comply with these rules is uh, a nearly impossible burden, especially for people whose lives are, uh, you know, at the especially difficult end of an already uh, difficult spectrum uh, and that uh, try as they might, people feel as if they might have no choice but to violate rules or they just might violate rules in ways that they weren't aware of. And, you know, uh, maintaining this constant sense of uh, punctilious attention to this arcane uh, set of rules is not necessarily the highest priority for someone who's you know trying to figure out how they're going to feed their kids this week, right? Where they're going to sleep this weekend. And when you're suffering from poverty, the last thing you really need is to be in a culture of paranoia and fear all the time. You write, despite litigation aimed at protecting clients' rights relative to its international com- counterparts, the U.S. system is more suspicious of fraud and abuse, more demeaning and legalistic, and difficult for recipients to deal with. So has it worked in getting assistance only to those who need it? And are the rest of the world's welfare systems just riddled with fraud? Uh, So there are certainly fewer people participating in a program like TAMF than there were before, right? Um, That's largely a product of the Personal Responsibility and Work Opportunity Reconciliation Act of 1996, the famous uh, Clinton welfare reform that moved uh, AFDC changed AFDC to TANF and moved to a set block grant funding model of you know, $16.5 billion for TANF funded programs every year that hasn't changed since 1996. Uh, so there are definitely fewer people participating in that program. So welfare reform has been effective um, in that regard. Uh, in terms of the, you know, changing the the characteristics of the people who are participating, removing the quote-unquote undeserving poor. Uh, I think that it is more bad luck uh, and finding yourself the target of one of these investigations uh, that dictates who gets removed from the program uh, more so than, you know, who actually, quote-unquote, actually doesn't deserve it or uh, isn't officially qualified. And a number of other countries are uh, you know, moving more in this direction. I'm not an expert in international welfare states, uh, but 
other countries have in the last uh, 10, 20, 30 years moved more toward uh, a kind of U.S. style uh, enforcement, punishment, investigation regime. So I don't think that uh, that other countries' uh, systems are riddled with fraud, but I do think that this idea that fraud is everywhere and that people need to be really closely policed um, has at least to some degree spread internationally. And you point out that punitive adversarialism within welfare bureaucracies tracked with the increased punitiveness of the criminal legal system in the late 20th and early 21st century. So has poverty been increasingly criminalized since Reagan, no matter what party is in in control? Is this punitive nature of expanded criminalization of poverty, is this a bipartisan effort? It is. Uh, and in that regard, it's it's quite similar to a lot of the quote unquote tough on crime policies uh, that are historical corollaries uh, for this transition um, to increasingly intense investigation and enforcement efforts. Now, I, I should say this is not a, a historical novelty. I note in the book uh, that going back to you know English poor law in the 1300s, there were Uh, components uh, for surveilling people and counteracting deception and claims for assistance. And it's, you know, been around in U.S. public assistance uh, since the the earliest days. So um, this idea of surveilling people, checking up on people, punishing people for violating the rules, not entirely new, um, historically speaking, not, not by a long stretch, but it has intensified uh, and it has intensified as a, largely bipartisan issue. Uh, uh, Again, like tough on crime, uh, there has been a period, and I think we're we're largely still living in it, um, since uh, really the late 1970s and into the 1980s and beyond, that no politician wanted to be less tough on crime than their opponent, right? And no politician wanted to be easier on welfare participants uh, than their opponent. And Reagan epitomized that, uh, obviously, as a Republican, but, um, you know, President Bill Clinton picked up that that banner and ran with it. Um, and since then, you know, we've seen some some minor, you know, kind of changes and, and cycles of uh, maybe minor relaxation here or there. But largely, it's it's still a univocal uh, movement uh, among the two major political parties in the United States that, you uh, People who participate in welfare need to be really limited in their action. That these, you know, uh, forms of assistance that we need to give that we give to them need to be very closely controlled, uh, and that we need to empower uh, actors within the criminal justice system and in administrative and, and civil legal settings uh, to enforce all of these rules. And when there is no partisan debate, then it's something that is not that is overlooked by the media because there isn't that bi- that partisan debate. There is bipartisanism, which had happened uh, back in the 1990s when it came to not addressing climate change. So it's something that's really important that that it not be a bipartisan issue. We're speaking with sociologist Spencer Hedworth, author of Policing Welfare, Punitive Adversarialism, and Public Assistance. You can find out more about Spencer at his website, spencerhedworth.com. So you uh, also point out that the suspicion, surveillance, and scrutiny associated with punitive adversarialism shape clients' experiences in ostensibly helping-oriented agencies producing suspensions, disqualifications, and criminal prosecutions. These measures increase pressure on clients to adopt or at least profess normative thinking and behavior. They also exacerbate stigmatization and penalization. How does that stigmatization affect a recipient's ability to adopt normative behavior? Does stigmatism work in getting people to function the way the state wants them to, or does it just get them to pretend the way the state wants them to? Uh, yeah, I think that it's it's probably a you know a fair amount of the latter, right? It's probably a fair amount of uh, okay. I know that you know these investigations are out there, so I need to uh, go about my business in such a way that you know, I can potentially sneak by, right? That I can potentially avoid becoming the target of one of these investigations because you know one of the things you know I've written about this in a in a previous article with a with a co-author, Sean Osei Awusu, who's a law professor at Penn, 
Well, he studies public defenders, right? So we wrote a, an article together. It's called The Accused Poor. It came out in, in Social Justice a few years ago uh, that sort of compares and contrasts the positions of people who are accused of conventional criminal offenses uh, and are represented by public defenders in the criminal justice system and people who are accused of these administrative violations in public assistance programs. And what we find, uh, you know, in this comparison of our, our two areas of research is that largely once you're accused of a crime or accused of an administrative violation, uh, you are very, very likely to be found either you know, legally, legally liable, whether that means uh, guilty, most likely pleading guilty in a criminal context, or found to be uh, uh, in, vi in intentional violation of program rules, having committed a quote unquote IPV or intentional program violation in a welfare program. Um, so I think that the sort of effect on client's mind, again, I can't, you know, get inside um, the, the heads of people who are participating in these programs or con are considering participating in them. Uh, but I think the effect uh, is largely to discourage people from applying at all, discourage people from participating at all. And uh, if they are participating, just trying to survive one day at a time, right? It's adding another aspect to living in poverty of precariousness, of uh, paranoia to use to use your language and uncertainty and um, just trying to get by one day at a time and avoid becoming the subject of one of these investigations that once it starts you are largely powerless to stop and you point out that dedicated fraud units encourage self-policing intensifying pressure on clients to adopt behaviors and self-presentations that evince deserving poor status through demonstrating compliance and personal responsibility so how complicit then are these deserving poor in the framing and defining of the undeserving poor can demonstrating compliance and personal responsibility cause friction within communities if not families uh, I don't have really direct evidence on that, um, so I would I would sort of punt on that. I I will say uh, that most of the things that, in the eyes of a welfare fraud investigator, at least the ones that I spoke to, most of the things that would uh, give you "quote unquote" deserving poor status, or at least the clearest indicators of that status, are things that are completely outside of your control. Right? It's being an older person. Uh, it's being a person with a disability, especially a visible disability, or it's being a very young person, right? A child. Um, those are predominantly uh, the categories of people that they see as deserving poor, right? Or at least that's the, the surest way to stamp your, your ticket as a member of one of those groups, uh, of that group of uh, being quote unquote, uh, deserving poor. And this other stuff in terms of demonstrating responsibility, uh, that type of thing, uh, there's some that you can uh, do there, I think, to uh, make yourself seem like a quote unquote good client, like a rule adherent client to your caseworker. So your caseworker doesn't refer you to uh, the fraud investigation unit. Uh, but uh, again, those sort of uh, gold standard, okay, this person is quote unquote deserving poor uh, is uh, de determined largely by factors that aren't things that you could control. And you write, you, uh, if, if you talk about this whole idea of adversarialism. And if, if your only encounter with government, with the state, is through punitive adversarialism, how might you feel about the government, whether it's protests against police violence or the January 6th Capitol siege, if those people had a relationship with the state that's only through this punitive adversarialism, what do you, you know, what do you think is missed in the grievances toward police and policing, especially of people of color, when there's a lack of recognition of the impact of the petty accountability in police lives of public assistance recipients? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, this is this piece of research or this, this research project fits in uh, with a kind of broader set of studies about the general alienation of people away from their government, right? The lack of trust in government, uh, the lack of perceived legitimacy in uh, all types of legal bureaucratic institutions uh, and 
it does, I think, connect to these you know, broader situations where people see the government as oppressive. They see the government as uh, out to get them as vindictive and not as supportive. And it is particularly pointed, I think, uh, to observe a setting like a quote unquote welfare agency that is ostensibly helping oriented, that is officially about providing uh, help to people who need it and to see it having these uh, punitive and uh, adversarial characteristics that conventionally in our, in the, you know, sort of uh, abstract world of imagining government, we associate with different components of the government and not a part like this. So yeah, I think it's a, it's a key part of that story. So you point out that there's both a lack of certainty about the outcomes of these investigations and a lack of uniformity across state lines as you interview five different fraud investigators from different parts of the country. So there's complete un, un, uh, there's no uniformity across state lines when it comes to what entails welfare fraud. So to what extent could federal guidelines bring clarity to what investigators can do and what they should be looking for? that might ensure accuracy in the outcomes of those investigations? Yeah, I think uh, a more centralized, a more closely federally controlled system would bring a lot more uniformity. Uh, as you suggest, and as I note, uh, there is a massive disparity uh, in how likely you are to be investigated for welfare fraud, uh, how likely you are to be criminally prosecuted if you are in fact investigated um, across state lines, but also across local offices within a state or, or even across, you know, different investigators within the same office or different caseworkers within the same office, right? Um, you know, I have multiple stories in the book from multiple fraud investigators. Yeah, you met, mentioned there were five different states. There's actually like 42 people that I investigated across these five different states. Uh, but I have multiple stories from these folks about, you know, before I got here, the last person did X very differently from me, right? Um, so whether your investigation came up on the Friday that was the old person's last day or the Monday that was the new person's first day, you're facing a, a really significant difference there, right? So I think that federal uniformity in policies and procedures could go a long way in standardizing things. Uh, but one of the hallmark characteristics of people who are in this type of job, people that uh, Michael Lipsky calls street-level bureaucrats, one of the hallmark characteristics of these types of jobs is having discretion, right? Is having the ability to decide uh, substantially what to do with your time, uh, what to focus on, how to go about it, so on and so forth. So to at least some extent, that lack of uniformity uh, is going to be imminent to a uh, to a bureaucratic context like this. And I want to jump back to the a little bit of the historical context again, because you write in 1981, Ronald Reagan swept into office on a wave of generally anti-government and specifically anti-welfare rhetoric, calling on longstanding and deeply held stereotypes. Reagan used parables of welfare fraud, particularly racist, sexist images of welfare participating women as rapacious parasites, as central talking points in his campaign and gubernatorial and presidential administrations. So how often is anti-welfare, anti-government rhetoric nothing but a cover for racist and sexist politics? Uh, I, <laughs> I think it's, it's quite frequent. Uh, quite frequently, that's the case, right? Um, the history of anti-welfare backlash in the United States in political discourse and in popular discourse is intractably tied up with not just classism, but especially racism and sexism, right? Those have been uh, first and foremost uh, in opposition to public assistance policies um, and framing opposition to public assistance policies uh, in terms that appeal to racist and sexist instincts um, has proven to be an effective political strategy. So, um, it's an, it's an interesting sort of chicken uh, or the egg question, right? Are, is it that people want to be racist and sexist, so therefore they are uh, targeting programs in ways that activate those uh, types of biases and stereotypes? Or is it that people want to kill the meager social safety net that we have and utilizing racist and sexist tropes is an effective means to that end, right? Or is it that these two goals can, can go hand in hand with each other? Um, 
I'm not sure exactly where the uh, where the first mover is in that equation, but there's no doubt uh, that the uh, pushback against public assistance and the framing of people who participate in public assistance as uh, uh, yeah mendacious, rapacious parasites that those things are uh, inexorably at this point tied up with with racism and sexism. And again, I want to stress that this is not a Republican Party only project. You mentioned the Personal Responsibility and Work Opportunity Reconciliation Act of 1996, which is actually welfare reform. And that was preceded two years earlier by President Clinton's Violent Crime Control and Law Enforcement Act of 1994, the Crime Omnibus Bill. Did Clinton primed the system for the poor who would be further policed through and criminalized by welfare, including through fraud investigations. Did he prime the system for incarceration of the poor? The the uh, key historical stuff that's happening here, I think the really sort of priming of the system happens earlier, right? Um, this happens uh, in the Nixon administration uh, in terms of both criminal justice policy and welfare policy beginning in the Nixon administration, um, or even a little bit earlier, depending on what exactly you're looking at, uh, then the Reagan administration really creates, uh, in my in my assessment, the Reagan administration really creates the key infrastructure here, the foundation uh, by which this criminalization of poverty would be carried out in a effective, systematic manner, right? Uh, creating federal laws that for instance, required these states to maintain fraud investigation units, right? That, in my mind, that is really the uh, kind of origin story of this modern form of the criminalization of poverty. But uh, the Clinton administration and especially um, the uh, welfare reform, uh, Perora, of 1996, no doubt accelerated it, right? Um, and among the many things that that legislation did was add a bunch of new reporting requirements, uh, a bunch of new circumscriptions of how uh, benefit resources could be used uh, and provided additional support and infrastructure for the further criminalization of uh, poverty. So I think the, the, the Clinton administration, as well as uh, the, the Congress during the Clinton administration that actually passed that piece of legislation before President Clinton signed it, um, is is certainly a responsible party here uh, in moving us toward where we are now. You're right that uh, perhaps most consequently, the Clinton welfare reform replaced AFDC's matching grant fund with TENF's block grant funding, establishing a set annual federal contribution of $16.5 billion unchanged since 1996 and ending these benefits entitlement status. And so I want you to clear up something for me, because does this mean that since 1996, welfare has been cut every year as the contribution has never been raised? Because a common refrain I hear on the right is that every year welfare spending increases, not decreases. Yet you write, even as social safety net spending has actually grown, it is increasingly funneled toward a particular subset of the poor, namely formal labor market participants. So has welfare then expanded while excluding the jobless and poor? That's a good way to put it. Uh, the, uh, it you know, part of this depends on how you define welfare. And this is something that I you know, address early in the book that a really capacious or comprehensive understanding of welfare um, includes a bunch of different types of programs, including all of the age-based eligibility programs uh, like Medicare and Social Security retirement. Uh, but also things like tax credits, uh, which are you know, arguably uh, the predominant form of a, social, a quote unquote social safety net now. Um, and those things are almost exclusively uh, available to people who participate in the paid labor force. Um, if you think about, you know, quote unquote welfare as uh, TANF and SNAP, SNAP spending has gone up uh, partially or uh, depending on your perspective, predominantly to compensate for the loss of TANF. So not only has uh, TANF effectively shrank every year due to this set block grant at 16.5 billion since 1996 with inflation, right? That amounts to effectively shrinking every year. It's also increasingly used for things other than direct quote unquote cash assistance to poor people. Um, so with replacing AFDC with TANF in 1996, the federal government gave state governments a bunch of authority over how to run those programs. 
And that includes spending TANF dollars on lots of things other than direct assistance to the poor. Um, and in some states, the percentage of TANF that actually goes to direct payments uh, to poor people is in the single digits, right? And over 90% in some states of those TANF dollars are going to all kinds of other programs, including things like abstinence only, sex education programs, college scholarship programs for families that make a quarter million dollars a year, uh, things that seem pretty distant from uh, what many people think should be the objective of a program like TANF, and certainly what I think the popular understanding of a program like TANF is. So, so they, did they just become a slush funds then for political beliefs? Uh, to some extent, right? There are limits on how exactly those uh, those dollars can be spent. Uh, but in uh, certain states, they have been shifted uh, to a substantial degree into uh, yeah politically motivated projects. One last question for you, Spencer. We have been speaking with sociologist Spencer Hedworth. He is the author of Policing Welfare, Punitive Adversarialism and Public Assistance. Spencer is assistant professor of sociology at Purdue University. And you can find out more about Spencer at his website, spencerhedworth.com. Spencer, our final question for each and every one of our guests, I promise, is what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. But I think this one's pretty easy. So you write that federal and state authorities have designed and implemented various client fraud focused administrative systems within public assistance. Dedicated fraud control units are the most concrete bureaucratic establishments of such systems. These novel entities are good examples of the welfare state criminal justice hybrid institutions that characterize neoliberal poverty management. And I think are probably a major motivator in all of the racialized police violence we have that's going on in the United States today. Can the welfare system, can it be delinked from the criminal justice system? How difficult would it be to do that? And what is the alternative to this current kind of fraud oversight that criminalizes poverty? Uh, I think, you know, in the abstract, it can. Uh, in our political reality, I'm, I'm frankly not sure. Uh, the I think the easiest alternative um, to the current system and arguably something that would save money here as it would save money in a lot of places is a you know guaranteed basic income uh, type of system where eligibility is not contingent on all of these obscure and complicated rules, right? You'd save a lot of money in terms of uh, administrative oversight and not having to pay all these investigators. And you would not create a circumstance where people are, are being criminalized for uh, violating rules. So I think that would be the, the most straightforward uh, way out of this situation. And I think it would also address um, a number of other problems more effectively um, than the current system we have in place. Is the uh, political capital available to do that? Um, I'm not sure. Uh, I think there are you know smaller incremental steps that you can take. One of the things I talk about in the book is the way that this system is set up. It's based on uh, people being referred for investigation. Uh, in many cases, you know, something we didn't get into, but I have an article about this for those who might be interested. In many cases, that involves uh, people snitching on each other, right? Um, so me getting mad at my neighbor because their dog is barking. And so I call uh, the food stamp police on them to to come investigate them because I suspect that you know somebody's working who said they weren't or something like that. Um, so, but you've got this referral based system where it's members of the public or police agencies or suspicious caseworkers that are referring people, and that system is very prone to biases. Uh, it's very prone to uh, capriciousness, right? Um, it's very prone to lots of things that make it so not just that you know poverty is criminalized, but that these efforts fall disproportionately on especially vulnerable people who are more tied up with the criminal justice system, who live in neighborhoods that are seen as quote unquote problem areas by welfare fraud investigators um, that are already, because someone is already the target of stigma, suspicion, vitriol within the system, um, they are also disproportionately likely to be referred for a fraud investigation and therefore punished either administratively, civilly, or criminally. Um, so moving away from the referral-based system and toward uh, some type of you know, 
random audit system if you want to have these enforcement efforts in place, um, something that doesn't rely so heavily on you know, pre-existing ideas about people and, and uh, frankly, biases and, and stereotypes about people um, would, I think, go some way toward uh, making the system at least somewhat more equitable. I just thought of a better question from Hell for You, Spencer. Are you ready? I'm ready. So is means testing a political, a liberal political concession to racists? Um, yeah, maybe. <laughs> uh, you know, the, the idea that, that uh, public assistance, again, should be means tested, should be reserved for people who are in particular situations goes back a long time. I mean, you can even you know look at the recent uh, conversations and evolution in the economic stimulus payments as kind of a microcosm of this conversation, right? Unfolding over 18 months instead of hundreds of years. Um, but uh, the, uh, the fact that, you know, the system is going to be means tested, arguably you could say is uh, a, a concession uh, to, to racists. I think that um, ensuring uh, that people are going to be really actively policed and that anyone who participates in this program is going to be subject to these enforcement efforts. That, in my mind, is a more explicit concession. Spencer, thank you so much for being on our show. This is a fantastic first book. Again, congratulations. Spencer Hedworth, author of Policing Welfare, Punitive Adversarialism and Public Assistance. Find out more about Spencer at his website, spencerhedworth.com. Thank you so much for being on our show. Thanks for having me, Chuck. It was a pleasure. Take care. You too. If you like what you just heard, please show your support for completely listener-supported This Is Hell by subscribing to our weekly Friday Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell or by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support where you'll find all of the ways you can support your friends here at This Is Hell, including all of our merchandise, the trucker's hat, the camping mug, the t-shirts, the tote bags, everything at thisishell.com when you click on support. Bringing you bong-hitting journalism since 1996. This is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show podcast live-streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing today's show is Richard Norwood. This week's question from Hell is, what secret society are you trying to join? What secret society are you trying to join? Richard, do you have more responses from our listening audience to this week's question from Hell? Yes, I do. But first, yes. you know, I want to call the food stamp police on my neighbor's dog. <laughs> You're so cruel. You know what I'm thinking about doing it? The next time we actually do have an anniversary party, I believe that one of the prizes is going to be the last food stamp I ever got. I still have it. What secret society are you trying to join? Mark A. Answers. The WPA. The Wokes Progress Administration. Oh, God. I don't want to be a part of that group. Angela M. answers, I can't tell you, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> That's right. That's a real secret society. What secret society are you trying to join? Dan K. answers, the elders of Zion. Oh, God. They have the best nosh. <laughs> Claire B. answers, I'm not trying to. I already did. Oh. And she doesn't say what it Which was. Which group it was. <laughs> I see. See, now that's a good secret society. Andrew S. answers the stonecutters. <laughs> there are reference. so many different uh, things about stonecutters. I have no idea what that's about. That's a reference to a Simpsons episode. Uh, Monty Burns I is have, the leader of the stonecutters. I see. I must have missed that. No, it wasn't that great. <laughs> what secret society are you trying to join? Neil C. answers the AFLCIA. <laughs> because... In a democratic workplace, all the operatives should decide which government to overthrow next. <laughs> all right. Uh, Jeffrey answers, cult of the green goddess, salad dressing. <laughs> God, Jesus Christ. And lastly, Fabio answers with the classic answer. Yes. Your mom. Ah, oh, Fabio, thank you so much. We really appreciate that. Please send your answer to this week's question from hell to us via email, chuck at thisishell.com. You can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio. You can 
Send it to us via Facebook at facebook.com slash this is hell radio or post it there. But we must have your answer by the end of tomorrow's show when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth. During this week's moment of truth, Jeff goes Uber Hollywood. Tune in to tomorrow's show, streaming live, 10 a.m. Chicago time, here, right here at thisishell.com, or listen to the podcast posted shortly after our live stream at the same place, as well as shared on social media. Richard, who is on tomorrow's Thursday show? Yes, tomorrow we have Sarah Ilmud on her Jadalaya article, Sheikh Jahara, the question before us. And in a moment of truth, Jeff Dorchin goes Uber Hollywood. Hollywood. If uh, And I am your bitter, blind, broke, cap-tooth radio show host, Chuck Mertz. That is Richard Norwood. Thanks to our guest today, Spencer Hedworth, author of Policing Welfare, Punitive Adversarialism, and Punitive in Public Assistance. And you can find out more about Spencer at his website, spencerhedworth.com. Thanks to Richard for producing. Thanks to Alex for booking today's and tomorrow's and all this week's guests. With my most sincere apologies, yes, I am a white dude, but keep in mind, still a race and gender traitor. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell, and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.